LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and today we present part two of our interview with Graham Phillips discussing his book, Wisdom Keepers of Stonehenge, The Living Libraries and Healers of Megalithic Culture. The interview resumes as we speculate about how the stones of megalithic monuments could possibly have been quarried, transported and lifted into place. Now, I mentioned in the context of what you've just been laying out that you know how these stones might have been moved and certainly taking them uh, out onto the sea and then down and up the Bristol Channel. Uh, all of that makes a lot more sense. But now we could do a whole show just on potential construction techniques of these megalithic complexes, you know, how the stones were quarried, how they were moved, how they were put in place, particularly things like the lintel stones at uh, at Stonehenge, how all this could possibly have been done. And there's lots of theories out there. Some of them have been tested in the real world and found to be wanting. But just in general terms, with all your sort of years of looking at this, what's your best guess? What is your what do your instincts tell you about how this this was probably done? What sort of techniques? Well, with some of the smaller stone circles, it's not that difficult to work out how they could have done it. But with the big ones. Um, and let's just say Stonehenge. I think it was done by how did they put the stone? I mean, how did they drag the stones around? Well, plenty of archaeologists have reconstructed the way of pulling these stones along on rafts, which are then placed on top of rollers. If you go to Stonehenge now, there's a complete big visitor center that's built there. And there they have actually got a reconstructed stone on a kind of wooden sledge thing with rollers underneath it about in the same size as the stones for the big circle at Stonehenge. And I've seen plenty of um, TV shows where they've had like about a hundred people dragging these things along and, uh, and somebody just takes the roller from the back and brings it around the front. That is that how to move these things around isn't that much of a mystery. How they actually managed to get them standing upright, especially ones that weighed sort of, you know, 30 or 40 tons or more, um, then the chances are that they had already dug a hole. They knew how deep the hole had to be, and they simply dragged it along until it actually got over the hole. And then probably um, there's built up ramps of... Um, cross, what you, what, how would you call it? You, you've got 
um, logs and you place them, you hoist it up a little bit further and you place another log underneath that to keep it where it is and hoist it up a bit at a time until the stone flips over and falls in the hole. Getting the actual lintel stones on top of the circle. Now that's a really interesting one. And my pet theory is that what they did is they covered the whole thing in earth and dragged them up ramps. Yeah, I mean, that in itself seems mind-boggling, doesn't it? Because it would have to be such a gentle incline for to make it even remotely feasible, wouldn't it? Like, you know, you couldn't have like a, a 30, 40 degree uh, angle of ramp, could you? No, you'd, you'd, but the thing is, when you say, oh, they'd have to have built a massive great hill and then, you know, got rid of the whole thing again. Well, up at Avebury, they built right near the stone circle at Avebury, uh, the same people who were building Stonehenge or the same, you know, at the same period as, as those stones were being erected at Stonehenge. At Avebury, they decided to build a great big artificial hill called Silbury Hill, which originally was, was over 300 feet high, I believe. Uh, it's eroded away over the years and it covers many acres. It's a huge artificial hill. Now, if they can do that, then nobody knows why they built this artificial hill. I've got no idea why it was built. Um, archaeologists have determined that there's nothing inside it. There was no tomb inside it or underneath it. It's just a massive great hill built of earth and rubble for no apparent reason. Perhaps it's a, a viewing place. You can go and stand on top of it so you can have a good view of the stone circle nearby. Who knows? But if they can build something like that, well, they can easily build something like that around Stonehenge to pull the stones up the side and then dig it all down again. Time and effort, the amount of people involved, the amount of time it took, the amount of effort seems to have been no problem to these people. They were quite prepared to do all this. Yeah, we can speculate about some of the possible techniques you mentioned when we get into stones and other parts of the world, getting into the hundreds of tons that would simply crush wooden rollers. But again, subject for another day. We've talked about these mounds, these artificial hills. There's a lot of these as well seem to be connected with the, the stone circles. And as you say, they really are a mystery, but they clearly weren't done for no reason. Um, but it's just trying to divine their purpose now is, is the kicker. Probably the best known of these for people who are wondering what we're talking about is, is Glastonbury Tor. Yeah, the, the, th- the thing about the megalithic culture in Britain and Ireland is it wasn't just building stone circles. Stone circles, okay, it starts building stone circles, you know, around 3000 BC. Then around 2500 BC, it starts to build these larger henge monuments that I was talking about. And they often consisted of not just one big circle, but also around them, there's this henge of ditch and embankment. And then you've got other structures built within the stone circles, like other rings or at Avebury, uh, a square of stones. Sometimes they'd place large monoliths in the middle of them or at various locations. But in addition to that, they started around 2500 BC to, uh, for these larger henge monuments, they started to build stone avenues, um, long stone rows of stones, say, seven, eight, nine feet high, going off, um, placed about 50 feet apart, rows of stones um, that would perhaps be as long as two or three miles 
sometimes they'd have one stone row and sometimes they'd have two stone rows going off from either side of a stone circle. Avery's got two. Stonehenge has got one that goes for a couple of miles from Stonehenge, bends round and then reaches a nearby river. Uh, the thought is that people would arrive by river and this was some kind of ceremonial way. So these stone rows and avenues would often also be accompanied by earthworks. Uh, either side of them, there would be ditches and embankments. So these were really um, massive structures. And so people began to talk about, archaeologists have more recently began to talk about these larger stone circles and the accompanying monuments of stone rows and uh, avenues and earthworks as megalithic complexes. And one thing about these megalithic complexes, they were very often accompanied by a nearby uh, artificial hill that was not built with a tomb inside it or for any purpose other than to be a hill. And these artificial hills, the, the, the largest is, as I mentioned, Silbury Hill near Avebury. There's another one which is almost as big in, in North Wales. And But a lot of these stone circles, even Stonehenge nearby, although it has eroded away over the years, um, the, there was a, a hill, a, an artificial hill built quite close to Stonehenge that seems to have been some kind of observation point for some reason. So these megalithic complexes not only included the stone circle, but over the years began to include other monuments. Well, in trying to consider potential purpose or purposes for these megalithic mounds, you mentioned towards the top of the hour that uh, some of the stone circles were built on elevated areas uh, so they could get a clear view of the horizon. Now, when I think of megalithic mounds, I think of them as set amongst flat, relatively flat countryside. And when we were talking about the beginning of this culture, the early days, we talked about the stones of Stenness in the north of Scotland. And a lot of Scotland, not all of it, but a lot of it, is particularly hilly and mountainous. So is there is there any pattern that suggests that these megalithic mounds were constructed in flat areas and that in more mountainous areas they don't exist? Most of them are in a place where you could observe quite a lot of the sky from. In other words, whatever importance stars they wanted to see, they could get a good view from. So it could be on the side of a hill. They're not necessarily on the tops of all hills. I mean, few of them are actually on the top of a hill. They're either on plains or on an open side of a hill, if you like. So you've got a, a good view, a panoramic view of the horizon, although you may have a hill in front of you obscuring some of it. Um, so it's not exactly that they all decided to build them on a flat plain or on top of a hill. They tend to be built um, where there's a good view of the sky, but not in such an exposed position. Glastonbury, interestingly enough, the actual tour at Glastonbury uh, is a, a is a a natural hill. But what's happened there, which is really fascinating, is that in seemingly in megalithic times, what happened is that the whole hill was um, sculptured. The landscape was sculptured. The people decided to create a whole series of terraces that lead to the top and. Nobody knows why. Some people have suggested it would be for farming, for, for farming purposes, but that just doesn't seem to hold up at all because the kind of places where you've got terraces for growing crops 
is places where like when you're growing rice in areas where you, you, need, you need these terraces to be to be um, sodden with water. Well, there's no rice growing going on up there. The kind of crops that you'd have in Glastonbury in that area wouldn't need to be grown on the side of Glastonbury at all. You had a very fertile area around there where you could grow your crops. So whatever these terraces that were built around Glastonbury Tor for, and some people believe that there might have once been a stone circle on the top, but that hasn't been proved yet. But it was um, landscaped, if you like, at considerable um, expense in labour and the amount of time it would have taken um, sometime, perhaps around the time that Stonehenge was built, and nobody knows why. Yes, yeah, so just to clarify, I gave the impression that Glastonbury Tor was 100% artificial. It's not. So there, there's a variety of scenarios here whereby some megalithic mounds are completely artificial others are much like the ones that you find you find even today throughout north america there are a variety of completely 100 percent man-made and those that are reshaping the natural environment so just to clarify that yeah that's absolutely yeah yeah that's absolutely right another phenomena we have here a little bit like the megalithic mounds that tie in with and relate to the stone circles is um men here these are basically isolated freestanding monoliths of which again there are many still remaining not nearly as many as there would have been several thousand years ago and they have their own story to tell yes the what's interesting is that other than stone circles and stone rows you have isolated single standing stones or monoliths known as menhirs in in britain um and the they can be anything i mean the largest in british isles still standing is in a churchyard in Yorkshire, and it's called the Rudstone Monolith. And it is, I, th- I think, if I'm not too mistaken, it's actually taller than the church steeple. If it's not taller, it's getting onto it. It's massive, great thing. Um, but that wasn't the largest one that would have been in Britain at, um, back in the megalithic period. There have been fallen ones found uh, on Dartmoor in Devon, for example, that are, are much taller than that. These things can be um, 50 feet high. Some of them would have been. I mean, these were huge, great things. Um, but the general run-of-the-mill menher seems to have been perhaps about six feet high, a, a standing stone. Some of them were smaller. And they seem to have been deliberately placed um, in alignments very often. You've got a stone circle... And then you'd perhaps a mile away, you would, if you went in one direction, you'd find one of these freestanding menhirs. And then maybe another mile or so after that, a couple of miles, you'd find another one in a field. And, and we don't know for certain from an archaeological point of view, how much of these, how many of these stones were actually aligned. We, it, it's, it's definitely, that certain amount of them were because they still exist, but because so many of them have been moved with, with uh, over the centuries with building of, far, of far farming and building of roads and cities and that, we just don't know. But people have suggested over the years that they may have been some kind of ancient trackways or they marked. I doubt that because very often these alignments go straight over hills or you get a stone one side of a river estuary and then you get a stone the other side, which is not really a trackway when you're going across a great big river. Um, and there's no evidence there was other bridges there. 
So they go straight through swamps and things. So it's unlikely they would have actually have been uh, trackways. Uh, it, since the 1960s, the theory has come about that they may be so-called ley lines, that these stones were put in the earth to plot alignments of uh, earth energy, somewhat in the same way as in China. There is Feng Shui, uh, ancient Chinese, and believe that um, currents of natural energy ran through the earth, and you could, tr uh, if you like, tune into these natural currents of energy by placing wooden stakes or sometimes stones in certain areas. And people have thought that this might have been what these stones were put there for. Um, on that point, I have absolutely no idea. There's just not enough evidence to determine if, if these stone row, uh, these alignments of stones join stone circles all over the country in some sort of lattice work. But they certainly did start building these alignments of stones for, for some miles away from certain larger stone circles. And very often you'll just find single solitary uh, monoliths standing um, in, on their own in the middle of nowhere. So it might be, who knows, if, if you want to look at stone circles as being like a parish church and the henge monuments as being like a cathedral perhaps these are like uh wayside shrines or something like that we're going to uh, as we begin to draw things to a close today graham we're going to touch upon the class of society the people who were known as the druids now i introduced this topic at this point because uh you end your book with a sort of a, a thesis and the druids are key to this. Now, we can say something briefly about when they entered history as far as we know, and general uh, view is that they were, amongst other things, perhaps a priest class, um, lawgivers, healers. They were clearly a very important part of the society that they, that some people say they controlled or oversaw. So perhaps you can just tell us where they enter your story and how they, how all of that overlaps with the story of the megalithic civilization the druids we know of through roman and greek writings of a couple of thousand years ago and they were celtic priesthood if you like learned caste amongst the celtic people of parts of europe and the british isles uh, julius caesar encounters them and he writes a lot about them um, he encountered them in France. He also encountered them in Britain when he tried to invade the country in 55 BC and failed. The Romans finally invaded what is now England and Wales in 43 AD. And for a few years after, gradually took over that area. And they write about the Druids being the people who are the priesthood of the Celts. But they're more than this. He talks about, for example, Julius Caesar talks about them uh, developing phenomenal memories. Um, the Celtic people, as I mentioned earlier, had no form of writing of their own. So to preserve tribal culture, to understand certain things uh, about their technology, the smelting of metals, the uses of herbal medicines. How did they record all this? Well, it was the Druid's job to remember all this stuff. And they remembered this in the form of 
long poems or they developed memory techniques what we now call monomic techniques um they also seem to have practiced from what various greek and roman writers tell us um the uses of certain things we might now call hypnosis to help their memories they so they became if you like the living libraries of celtic culture they now they they were here when the romans turned up it's thought that they this is generally thought that they arrived with the celts as the celtic priesthood around 700 bc early early historians in in the early 17th uh, in the late 17th early 18th century read about the druids in roman writings and thought that they may have been responsible for building stonehenge and the other stone circles and for a long time it was thought that the druids were the people who did it you still get druids meeting at stonehenge now they have got nothing to do with the original druids they'd probably totally disagree with me on this but they were really refounded more in modern times based on what the romans tell us about the druids rather than having some kind of um, unbroken tradition handing on from one to the other down to the modern druids and meet at stonehenge today but anyway less of that the fact is that a lot of people thought that the druids may have built stonehenge and the other stone circles until more recent times when archaeology has shown that well the people who actually built stonehenge it wasn't built by the druids or, any, or the celts who only came here in 700 bc they were built much much earlier and not by the celts and therefore not by the druids but what i'm suggesting is that the druids although they may not have been the people who originally built the stone circles may have inherited something of the original megalithic culture and the first thing you've got to realize is why did the celts manage to take over at all and what happened to the old civilization or the culture that had built the stone circles in simple terms the climate changed we know this now through archaeological work that has shown the kind of plants that the vegetation that was growing in certain um, uh, layers of soil. So we'll know, for example, that the kind of vegetation that was growing around 2000 BC and the sort of vegetation that was growing around 500 BC are markedly different, showing there would have been a much hotter climate at the one time than the, than, than the other. So from all, from these kind of, um, from this sort of analysis, it's now known that by the time the Celts turned up, the climate had got much colder. Colder climate means that people, uh, there's less food to go around. The peaceful society that seems to have existed for many, many years, for centuries during the megalithic period, comes to an end. The late megalithic people, or at least their immediate successors, the Bronze Age people, who are probably basically the same people, start to build defensive structures around their villages why because there's less food to go around they're protecting what they've got and with that the megalithic tradition of building stone circles starts to fall apart so that civilization is going a new civilization moves in from europe uh, migrates across in boats settles here gradually begins to take over they're the celts now until recently it's always thought that the stone circle building civilization stopped the celts moved in and so therefore the druids had really although they are 
recorded as using stone circles, they'd just taken them over. They'd found them already there. They had no idea what they were used for, and they were just conducting their ceremonies. But the latest archaeological work suggests that it's a continuation in many places in the country, even at Stonehenge, of the people using the stone circles during the megalithic people and that the first Celtic people that came here, plus their priesthood, the Druids, began to use the stone circles as well. And so the two cultures fused rather than one completely invading the other. And the proof of this is that the way that the Druids were buried at the time the Romans came were in so-called box tombs. I won't go into the whole details of what they like, but they're a very specific kind of tomb that seems to have been reserved for the priestly caste of the Druids. They were only thought to have been built during the uh, the Celtic period. Archaeology has now shown that they were being built throughout the entire megalithic period. And in other words, the people... Well, these box tombs are laid out in such a way to show us that the kind of people that were being buried, who, who were responsible, if you like, for overseeing the stone circles, who were being buried about 3000 BC, the Druids are being buried in that exactly the same way when the Romans turned up 2000 years ago. So it does suggest there's a continuation of these if you like, stone circle elders or whatever you want to call them, that later became the Druids in Celtic times. And if the Druids really did inherit something about why these stone circles were used, then perhaps what the Romans tell us the Druids used the stone circles for can actually tell us what the ancient megalithic people really built them for. When you were talking about the feats of memory that the uh, Druids had to develop given the lack of writing, it reminded me of uh, in Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451 towards the end of the book where uh, the drifters and the exiled book lovers take it upon themselves to completely memorize one book so they become a living repository of knowledge and they then pass it on to someone else so that when they die, the same book is kept alive by someone else. It also reminded me of June, Frank Herbert's sci-fi story. The, the Mentats are described in that book. And if we compare writing as a technology within June computers and artificial intelligence, there's been a crusade against that. So lacking that technology compared to writing, these Mentats are human beings who develop exceptional mental capabilities to try and replicate the abilities of computers. So the, the, from what we've put together, uh, what we can say, if what you're saying is correct, it was an exceptional group of people. And when the Roman invasion of Britain was eventually successful on its second attempt, we could say, oh, well, this is kind of why the megalithic age ended, whatever the Romans brought writing amongst other things. But it wasn't as simple. I mean, the, the Romans had a real issue with the Druids, and that's why they persecuted and pursued them and you do touch upon that in your book yes we know that before the romans invaded as a greek writers referred who visited britain refer to stonehenge still being used and uh, that the druids conducted ceremonies there we know that when the roman emperor nero invaded the country sorry when the roman emperor claudius invaded the country in 43 a.d he had um, a lot of trouble 
with the Druids. The Druids were some people that lived kind of outside ordinary culture. People would, um, many writers refer to the fact that during a battle between two tribes, if the Druids walked across the battlefield, all the participants would stop and wait until they'd passed before resuming their fighting. They kind of had the reverence, you know, the people held them in the same kind of reverence as um, cultures in the East hold Buddhist monks today. Um, they kind of lived outside normal society, but in some ways they were the glue that held Celtic society together because even though you could have a tribal leader, many disputes were solved by Druids who lived outside society and were brought in to um, resolve disputes. They were the learned people of society. They remembered the law, if you like, with these phenomenal memory techniques. Uh, what I find fascinating also is that if there's any doubt that it is the Druids who were associated, or at least had the Druids and whatever they were called before Celtic times, that were the people who were responsible for doing whatever they were doing at stone circles, is remember I mentioned these box tombs in which the Druids and, and their predecessors were, were, were buried. They're always built adjoining stone circles. In other words, other people have not buried the ordinary. I mean, stone ends that have been burials found in around Stonehenge of various dates, but specific tombs being built for a particular um, class of people at stone circles seem to be reserved for these priesthood and uh, the priesthood and these druids. We know this because of the kind of um, items that have been found in their graves and they're built literally attached to stone circles. So in other words, they're the only people who are being given the, um, if you like, the honour of being buried at stone circles for most of the time. So it's these people who are re revered um, by society as a whole. They, they're holding Celtic culture together in Britain against the Romans. So when Nero then takes over from Claudius in the, by, by the, by the, um, by AD 60, he decides that he's going to get rid of the Druids once and for all and orders the Roman governor of Britain to round them all up and get rid of them. And they all flee from places like around Stonehenge where they were and end up on the Isle of Anglesey in North Wales. And um, they are basically butchered. And that's the end of the Druids as far as the Romans are concerned. They would have been better to scatter, I think, really, and go underground. Uh, because when you get to Anglesey, you know, that western point of Great Britain, uh, we've got nowhere to go, really. They were cornered. Yeah, I, I, well, some, some of them escaped to Ireland and the, the Romans never invaded Ireland. And so the Druids continued in Ireland. And it's fascinating that they continued in Ireland until the 400s when Christianity took over in Ireland. And at that point, it's the local people when they became Christians decided that they didn't really want the Druids kicking around anymore. And those that didn't convert had to, they fled back to Britain, which was now in a state of disarray because the Roman Empire had collapsed. And so some Druids did come back to Britain from Ireland. And we know from some of the uh, first um, Christian missionaries in Ireland and converting people after the end of the Roman Empire in Britain quite a lot about how these druids were um considered by the by the celtic people 
not only did they supposed to have had these phenomenal memories, but what's really interesting is they were known primarily as being healers. And we are told that they were able to heal all sorts of things, that maladies which today we would consider, um, you know, might be easy to cure, like bad stomachs and things like this, that at the time most people would have to live with terrible stomach pain most of their lives, the way they were eating and they didn't have medicines. But the Druids tended to have all sorts of medicinal cures for all these things. We know this also from archaeology, which has excavated these box tombs, to find the remains of medicinal plants in containers or pottery in the tombs. And what is fascinating is that the Romans and Greeks, something that everyone said, ah, oh, that's just them making it up, claimed that the Druids they encountered were able to cure all sorts of maladies, including what we would today call cancer. And we're even told how they did this by using mistletoe in that particular case, and this particular forms of cancer. And the way that they prepared and um, and used mistletoe is very similar to an extract of mistletoe that today is used in chemotherapy. Now, that is absolutely fascinating to me. But what's really, really interesting is how did they prepare these medicines that they were able to to um to, to, to afford these cures well again the romans write about this so did the early irish and, and and british missionaries they tell us that in order to prepare these the the fruit or the um the, the flowers that they were using for the medicines they had to be harvested at very specific times, even at day or night at certain times of the year, plants open and closed, depending on when there's a full moon, for example, um, because when the full moon's out, certain moths are flying all over the place at night. And they're the moths that a plant needs to pollinate and certain other insects at certain times of the year. And the very time of the day or night is very important to when to cut, sow, reap, whatever you like, these various medicinal plants. And this is where I think the stone circles come in. Why was it so important to have stone circles aligned with various stars and so forth so you could determine what was going on, you know, as determine an exact time of night to do such a thing? For example, uh, one of the Roman writers, Pompolius Mela, tells us that the mistletoe to, for their cure had to be cut at a certain hour of the certain uh, night at the time of a full moon. Well, to get all this worked out, you'd need some kind of astrological calculator and stone circles could do that. You stand in the middle and you've got stones lining up with certain stars at certain times of the year, certain phases of the moon. So I think the answer to the whole of the megalithic mystery, if I'm wrong, is that the Druids were the successors of the original builders of the stone circles. These people developed amazing memory techniques like the Mentats in June, and they used the stone circles as part of their preparation techniques for amazing medicinal cures that have been, well, not even rediscovered to this day. Okay, final couple of points, Graham. Uh, we've been talking about the splendor and the, the magnificence of some of these megalithic complexes as they would have been 
in their heyday when they were freshly built. We can only imagine what it must have been like when the last stone was laid in one of these places to see that. Almost impossible to imagine. Even seeing what's left of them doesn't remotely do them justice. And we can only imagine over time, despite how much of that culture is left with us now scattered around the country, how much has actually been lost, whether it be from rising sea levels uh, happening gradually over the last few millennia through to relatively modern salvage and vandalism. Uh, you know, the stones being broken up for other things or just being torn down by religious zealots. So much of it is lost. We're having to kind of fill in the blanks based on what's what's still there. Yeah, it's quite interesting. I mentioned about Avebury, the largest stone circle. What happened there over the years is that there was once, I mean, hundreds of huge stones. I mean, there was basically hundreds of stones in the outer big circle, but there was other circles inside that. And then there was the stone rows, uh, stone avenues that went off from them and the nearby huge great hill of Silver Hill. The thing is that over the years, people have smashed up so many of those stones for in fact, most of the local farm buildings, the old farm buildings and the local church is built from stone that had been used. Like people had smashed up the stones from the stone circle to build the church and so forth over the years. Um, so you've got the you've got people deciding, well, you know, we've got a good supply of stone here. Let's just use it. You've then got people like in the Middle Ages, there was a local priest at Avery who decided that the stone circle was a devil's temple. So he wanted the stones pulled down. So what he did is he ordered the local villagers to dig pits and to pull the stones down and then put them into these pits and cover them up. And he wanted them all taken down. Well, I don't know, they must have, uh, something seems to have happened because under one of the stones at Stonehenge, archaeologists discovered that one of the stones that had fallen and been covered up back in the Middle Ages, when they excavated beneath it to try and put it back upright again, they found a skeleton of a man and they, they still had his, the clothes were still on him, even though the bones, his flesh had rotted away he still had instruments on him that proved that he'd actually been a barber he had like the scissors of his trade and barbers were often surgeons as well so they'd chop your arm off if it became infected so he had a i think he had other instruments with him that would show he was a surgeon barber if i remember right there might have been a pair of broken spectacles with the um with the skeleton but it seems that what happened is he was one of the people that was involved in the priest's work of pulling down this stone. And, of course, it fell on top of him and they couldn't move it. And at that point, we'd always known historically, that for some reason, the people decided that the priest was no longer going to be obeyed and they weren't going to pull the stones down anymore. And it may have been this that decided to stop them from doing it. The stones were cursed. Our barbers died. We don't, we're not doing that anymore. But he'd already pulled down quite a number, half the stones of the stone circle. Then what happens in the mid-1600s? You've then got the Puritans taking over in Britain at the time of Oliver Cromwell. And the Puritans didn't like these stones at all. They were the devil's work. So they decided the stones that still remained, they were going to literally smash them all up. They weren't just going to pull them down. So they smashed a lot of them up. Then the Puritan 
regime came to an end and the reign of Charles II came and people stopped smashing the stones up. But incredibly, the reason why so many of the stones still survive today is it's the ones that were pulled down on behalf of the priest that were hidden under the, you know, which were put under the ground and, and covered in earth that had been hidden from the Puritan zealots in the mid-1600s that have survived to be hauled back into place. So it's it, you've got incredible stories about these stones and how some of them managed to survive and how they were destroyed and then reconstructed over history. And I think Avery, if you ever get to go there, anybody who's listening to this, that is a place where there's a museum telling you all about the whole history of the stone circle there. And it kind of encapsulates the whole history of the megalithic um, the megalithic culture and the subsequent period since and people's attitudes to it. Stonehenge and stone circles in general of that type, that they do loom large in our imagination. And of course, that's reflected often in popular culture. And there's still a sort of a fascination with these places, isn't there? We see that in the enduring popularity of Stonehenge. As a tourist attraction, there's obviously a negative downside to that as well. But even a lot of these other locations that can still be visited today, they have a particular lure for us. And there is sort of a dimension that's quite, that we can't quite grasp, we can't quite put into words. And I've often wondered whether that in itself is just an echo from our ancestors, that these were very special places constructed by human beings and that, you know, we're not perhaps as different from our ancestors as we sometimes like to think. Well, it's no doubt in my mind, from the research I've done, that these stone circles had a function as a an astrological, astronomical calculator in order to determine the growing of hops and medicinal plants and so on and so forth. But that doesn't explain why they needed to be so big. The smaller stone circles that are in, that are in local... Um, smaller communities, fair enough. But the big ones, they, they purely took on a different dimension. They, obviously, the Druids or whoever their forebears were, were conducting religious ceremonies or cultural ceremonies at these places. They obviously also took on a religious significance. And where you've got particular larger, richer communities like down the centre or south of England where Stonehenge and Avebury are, people could afford to build much bigger stone circles. And I think the idea there is to impress. At Avebury, the people there decided to impress people by sheer size, whereas at Stonehenge, it was the intricate um, construction of an elaborate monument which they decided to impress people with and all this is why well there's obviously got there's a religious element in it there's massive cathedrals were built throughout europe in the middle ages when people could just meet together in a hut if they just wanted to worship these things are there to attract people and with people you've got influence and so forth so you've got many different reasons for the stone circles becoming as big and elaborate as they eventually did um so yeah they're very much like we are today we will build something very often much more elaborate or bigger than it needs to be just simply to well impress people 
Today, Graham, we've been talking about your latest book uh, entitled Wisdom Keepers of Stonehenge, The Living Libraries and Healers of Megalithic Culture. That's just come out and that's readily available everywhere. Perhaps before we close, you'd like to share with listeners details of your website. Uh, anything else you'd like to put out there? Yes, my website is grahamphillips.net, or if you just search Google for Graham Phillips author, you should find me. And on my website, the front page, you've got pictures of all my books, including this latest one, and you just click on the image of the book, and there's plenty of information there about all of my books, including this. Over the next few weeks, I should be making quite a few videos about the stone circles and the sort of things I've been talking about just now which will be going on my YouTube channel which is Graham Phillips author but you can click on a link to that on my web page and there's also a link to my Facebook page which is also called Graham Phillips author and I'd be very happy to have you join my Facebook page but it's all there uh, on the main page of my website Graham Phillips Splendid. Well, Graham, once again, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you very much indeed.